and welcome to National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I have been talking about this next episode for a number of weeks now. Uh, very excited to bring back for the second time uh, a very special guest, uh, economist, portfolio manager, and well-known uh, individual in, in the world of finance and investing uh, who has been a huge influence on me, Dr. Lacey Hunt. Uh, Lacey is very well known uh, as a, a manager of fixed income investments for multiple decades, but also for his macro theses around how monetary policy and fiscal policy fit in with various expectations of economic growth, inflation, and, and other realities. And, and I uh, not only have benefited so much from Lacey's work, but I get feedback all the time that you benefited from it. And so in these times that we're in and a lot of great discussion around uh, the Fed and monetary policy, um, I wanted to bring Dr. Hunt back on. Uh, we have a fair amount of pretty well-known Fed critics on the podcast. We've had Jim Grant, we've had Daniel DiMartino Booth, um, you, we, we've had Judy Shelton, all of which I think, by the way, are very distinguished and reputable and academically respectable critics, some taking different perspectives than others. My view of Lacey is he's in financial markets. He's an economist. There's not an agenda in his work, but there's a lot of uh, academic and uh, financial honesty and, and credibility and uh, we'll have our discussion here today and see what you think. So with all of that said, allow me to welcome back to Capital Record, Dr. Lacey Hunt. Lacey, welcome. My pleasure. Too kind, David. Too, well, too kind. I, I mean what I say. Um, Lacey, we, we, it's been a while since we were last together. Um, the Fed funds rate when we were last together was probably still sub 1%. I don't, I think they had gotten off the zero bound, but had not yet started with their series of 75 basis point increases. They've gotten up here to four and a quarter. And, and right now people can kind of arm wrestle if they're going to go to five or five and a half or, or something around there by middle of the year. But you've um, done a lot of work making the case that excessive indebtedness puts downward pressure on economic growth and that excessive monetary intervention essentially becomes pushing on a string, that it does much of the same. Have you changed your view on any of that? No. We just went through an interlude in which uh, we had unprecedented monetary and fiscal coordination. Uh, and we had two years, 2020 and 2021, in which total liquidity money, however you want to measure it, increased 20% per annum, totally unprecedented. Uh, there was uh, coordination to an extreme degree. The Federal Reserve stepped outside the bounds of the Federal Reserve Act. Uh, they weren't just a lender of last resort, but they also uh, were a spender of last resort. The policy, that policy has backfired, totally backfired. It's proven to be a, a huge mistake. Um, uh, 116 million uh, working Americans, full-time hourly and salaried workers, uh, in the last two years uh, have suffered uh, a 3% 
annual rate of loss in standard of living, um, which is the worst uh, in, in 42 years. There have been job gains, but uh, the modest and moderate income households of this country, plus an additional 60 million of our 70 million retirees have been absolutely clobbered. And there's been far more devastating than the gains in employment. Um, for Can the, I ask you, for the, for do the, you mind if I, the, I interrupt at that point to ask a question? Is it the coordination that is unprecedented post-COVID or the intervention? Because it would seem to me that post-GFC, there was an equally at then unprecedented mm -hmm. intervention. But is it the word coordination you're focusing on, the specific accord between fiscal and monetary? It, it, the, the, the size of the balance sheet increases was much greater. And also the Federal Reserve um, engaged in spending as well as just lending. Typically, the, the Federal Reserve is supposed to provide reserves and then it's up to the banking system. But in this case, the Federal Reserve was providing reserves which went directly into the banking system. And um, it's, a, it's the actual definition of too much money chasing too few goods. Um, but this debt has, is now much greater. Um, and, and the likelihood that we'll see that replay is unlikely. The pandemics are a hundred year event. <laughs> They're not regularly occurring. And, and, and look at what's happened in the UK. Uh, they had a huge pandemic response. Uh, a new government has come in. The economy is crumbling. They have too much inflation and, and they wanted to go back to the well. And what did the financial markets tell them? You cannot do it. And, and so um, for the time being, there is not going to be another replay of the disastrous events of 20 and 2021, but we are going to pay the price of the additional debt that we've taken on and also the inflationary consequences on 180 million people who've suffered this massive loss in the standard of living. And so the economy is now in much worse shape. The, the Federal Reserve had no choice but to, uh, to clean up their mistake and, and remember, when they went in, it was a combined monetary and fiscal policy operation. But when the results blew up, the fiscal policy was no longer there. Mm -hmm. And so the cleanup job was left entirely to the Federal Reserve. The same thing happened with Nixon's new economic program in 1971. It was a combined monetary and fiscal policy operation. And when the thing went south, fiscal policy was no longer there and it was left to a successive Federal Reserve chairman to try to deal with it. Um, the, good, the good news, uh, and also the bad news, uh, is that the Federal Reserve is now substantially uh, neutralizing that liquidity mountain that they created in 2020 and 21. Um, for example, um, from its peak in late uh, 21, the total reserves of the banking system have dropped from about 4.3 trillion down to 2.8 trillion. That's about a one and a half trillion dollar decline, almost 40 percent. And um, that's not and quantitative tightening. That's reverse repo. Uh, well, it, it, they are. Part of it is that they are liquidating securities out of their portfolio. 
now. But 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 to they they're being forced to do the reverse repo in order to raise the federal funds rate. Right. The Federal Reserve just doesn't say rise federal funds rate. Yeah. It has to shrink the reserve base. So right now there is uh, a great withdrawal of liquidity from the from the banking and financial institutions directly caused by the Fed's operations. And in addition to that, uh, bank deposits are declining. They've declined uh, half a trillion dollars uh, from their from their peak earlier this year, over early last year. And between the two items, uh, liquidity is being rapidly withdrawn. And my calculation is that when you take into account the, the huge growth in, in liquidity in 2020 and 2021, and the record decline that we've already experienced, and a further decline that we will see in the first half of this year, that liquidity mountain is going to be reversed. Why do you believe, Lacey, with that said, that credit spreads didn't widen more? And I know they widened, and we certainly know that nominal yields came higher, um, but credit spreads didn't reach the level you would think based on the financial tightening that you're describing. To me, um, the a lot of the financial markets do not reflect uh, the severity of the economic downturn that we're facing. There remains a, a very optimistic sort of undertow in the... In the uh, in the credit products, for example, um, perhaps even in the stock market, that um, when the economy slows down, the Federal Reserve will, will be able to pivot and everything will be fine. My view is that once the inflation is contained, in which the Fed is getting it done, with the headline inflation rate, I'm estimating for the six months ending December, we, we won't know the number for there too, but uh, the headline inflation rate in the last six months, I, I estimate it 2%. The job is getting done. It's not finished. There's still some excess liquidity in the system. But, but once the inflationary thrust is broken, then we're going to be back confronting the same problems that we were confronting when the pandemic hit. There's, there, we're suffering from a massive debt overhang. Um, domestically and globally. And by the way, the debt overhang is worse everywhere. Yeah. Europe, Japan, China. Um, the, when, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, the rest of the world was a drag on the United States. It's even more of a drag now. And, and global demographics have continued to deteriorate further. So I think that the inflationary episode that we went through was very vicious and very damaging, but that it is it is a thing that is passing from the scene. And if the reason it's passing is debated, and it, it may not matter, um, if the headline rate ends up getting back to two, as you suggest, um, does it is it relevant to our purposes how much of that was because of Fed interventions to bring that inflation down, and how much of it was supply side. And the reason I bring it up is that I, I believe it speaks to the causation to begin with. I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that used cars were down 15% last year because of the Fed. 
And yet I don't believe they went up 28% the year before because of the Fed either. Now, marginally, we can assume there's some monetary connection to these things. But when container cost went to 20,000 and came back down to 1,500, semiconductors were having a hard time coming into the country, appliances couldn't be delivered, laborers couldn't be hired. I believe those things were underrated in causative explanation of the inflation of 2021. And so therefore, it speaks to what the Fed's role in bringing the inflation down is now. I share your view that it's headed lower. I think it's empirically obvious, goods inflation as a leading indicator, and the shelter component catching up in the, as the lag effect wears off. But my fear, Lacey, is that people will look at it and say the Fed fixed inflation, and it will further deify the Fed in American thinking. Um, I think the risk is that when the Fed uh, participated with fiscal policy, acted outside the the bounds of the Federal Reserve Act, that they virtually assured that we would have um, two mistakes from the Fed. The pandemic response, which we know is blown up, and then the second, uh, the second policy error will be that because they have to contain the inflation, uh, we will bring on a recession. So we're going to have not one policy error, but two policy errors from the Federal Reserve, uh, and and the the supply side uh, elements definitely made a difference. Um, it's interesting that if, if you look at these various sort of um, barometers of supply-side activity, for example, uh, the volume of uh, rail freight and trucking and international shipping, if you look at the delivery times uh, from the diffusion indexes in the manufacturing and service sector, those problems were alleviated um, in the summer and fall of last year, but the inflation rate kept going higher. And I think that, that the fact that, that you, you, the supply side problems were, were contained, but the inflation rate remained high was an indication that the Fed's role was really the, the, the tipping point that took inflation to such extremes. They were both at work and we'll never know for sure. But, but I, I think that the main, the main uh, culprit was uh, the Federal Reserve. Could I just make one elaborating point? Sure. One of um, Friedman's great contributions was that the degree of monetary acceleration from the peak to the trough um, determines the extent to which the Fed inflates booms. And then the degree of monetary deceleration from the peak to the cyclical trough determines the uh, impact on the Fed on the recession. And um, so, so what, what Friedman uh, argued for was to constrain discretionary fiscal monetary policy because these swings up and then down are exacerbating the business cycle. They're not ameliorating the business cycle. Um, and, and that uh, John Taylor at Stanford 
Uh, he was advocating rules. In other words, um, the, the Federal Reserve bumbles once, that bumble almost certainly requires another bumble. Because once you, once you create an inflationary situation uh, uh, of this magnitude, there's, there's really no historical precedent that I'm aware of that we resolve the problem painlessly or, or without another downturn. And um, when you talk about the downturn, you're talking about the area under the curve. And the area under the curve, you can, you can have a result where you're long and shallow, or you can be deep and, and, uh, and short. And it's, those sorts of things are impossible, but I think we're gonna see that, that there is gonna be a prolonged period of economic weakness once the inflation is contained. And, and by economic weakness, is that um, in the same vein, you mentioned it going back to sort of the problems we had pre-COVID were debt overhang. And of course, debt overhang is not necessarily the answer as to the problem. It's the cause of the problem. Yes. The problem is quality of life, yes. lower, slower, or perhaps no economic growth, uh, Japan-like condition. Mm-hmm. Yes. And... And keep in keep in mind that that um, not not only is Japan heavily indebted, more heavily indebted, Europe is more is more indebted than we are, and so is China. And and both of them have have, in my opinion, made themselves more frail, much more frail. And and so we're we're going to have a difficult, um, a very difficult path going forward. When you say China, do you do you measure debt concern by the numerator divided by the denominator a debt to GDP or absolute levels of debt numerator? Expenses? No, I, I think that you have to look at the the um, you have to look at the ratio. The debt by itself doesn't tell you anything. Uh, the what I like to look at is the amount of GDP created per dollar of debt. We call that in economics the marginal revenue product of debt. And for most of the time period from the 1950s to the early 1980s, we generated about 70 cents of GDP growth for every dollar of debt. We're now down to 30 cents. And and Europe is at, at 25 and Japan is at 15. And we don't really know where China is because because the debt figures are not reliable and the GDP figures are not reliable. But we we know they have a major problem. We know they have a major problem. Is is your thesis, I'm looking at your your slide about this subject right now, that um, the marginal revenue product is the cause of lower velocity or a correlation to lower velocity that, that helps our economic understanding. It, it, it's, it's causal. Um, and um, I think that uh, as debt becomes more inefficient, uh, it generates less of an income stream to repay principal and interest. Diminishing and, return. Say again? A law of diminishing return. Don't, it, yes. In other words, if you overuse one of the factors of production, whether it's land labor or debt capital, Initially, output rises, but if you continue to overuse that factor of production, uh, output declines. And um, uh, I have uh, to, because you you want to avoid the simultaneous problem of having 
variables on both the right and left-hand side of the equation. What I do is I relate velocity in the current time period to prior changes in marginal revenue product of debt and also to prior changes in the loan-to-deposit ratio. It's a similar variable. And, and um, so in 2022, we did have a slight rise in velocity, very slight. Uh, but I believe that as we go through this year, velocity is going to turn back downward. And so the Fed is now reducing total reserve. Money growth is coming down. And when the Fed uses traditional monetary policy, which is what they're going to be constrained to do, it will be like pushing on a string. Monetary policy is not going to work well at all. And, and those that are making the assumption that the Fed can begin peeling off the federal funds rate increases at some point in time, and it will have the direct opposite impact of what they done, they have they've done to eliminate inflation, they're gonna find that they're wrong on that assumption. Because monetary policy in extremely over-indebted economies becomes asymmetric. It does work to contain inflation, but it, it doesn't work when you want to stimulate because you're confronted because in a traditional setting, the only way that monetary policy can work is if you get people to take on more debt. Yep. But the more debt then pushes you to a lower level of, of, of marginal revenue product. And, and this is really the story we had seen in our own country pre-COVID, but post-financial crisis. And I assume your belief would be that that's what we've seen in the European Union and, and certainly in Japan, uh, that there are less creditworthy borrowers doing less productive activities with loan capital, and therefore you're not getting the marginal revenue product. That's, that is exactly correct. And it's one of your major determinants of velocity. And so then what, what so monetary policy takes it to an extreme. They create too much debt to try to bail us out. And then ultimately it turns around and bites them in the back. Well, it's been a long time since I took an algebra class, but if MV equals PT, and you and I believe T is coming higher, and M is flat or lower, and V is lower, sounds to me like P has to come down. It does, and it will come down. And... Um, but you, but you have to remember that inflation is a lagging indicator. Yeah. It's a long lagging indicator. And um, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to calibrate these lags. Last year, for example, uh, the Fed would have achieved much more result, but the velocity of money rose a little bit. Yeah. And, it, and, it, it inter, and it countervailed uh, some of the magnitude of the decline in liquidity that we saw. And it, that, was a, that was at work, particularly there in the third and fourth quarters. But um, in my opinion, the velocity of money will turn down again. And the Fed is going to become impotent, in my, my view. Well, I am with you 100%. And there is one element that's a big theme of what you've shared so far that I think uh, I'm actually ignoring our listeners right now. I want to ask the question for my own benefit because I don't. I don't think I understand, but I suspect there is a, uh, uh, an answer. 
And when we talk about this um, coordination of the Fed and that they were not merely a lender of last resort, but they became a spender during the COVID moment, I would like to know how their market functioning was different post-COVID than post-GFC in the sense of post-GFC, we were running trillion-dollar deficits and they were buying treasury bonds hand over fist. The initial round of QE1 and then two and then three was $4 trillion. And we were running deficits each of those years. How is that not quasi-monetization of the debt in the same way post-COVID was? And I understand the mechanical difference that they were buying, they were doing a, a basically ledger entry onto a bank's balance sheet and removing a treasury security, crediting that bank with cash that didn't exist and then holding it in excess reserves at the bank. And that the argument is post-COVID, it was being spent in the economy because of the um, COVID support, the fiscal money being pushed out. But I don't know how that's different than GFC when we were also running deficits then. We were running deficits then, but the during GFC, um, Chairman Bernanke started something called Special Purpose Facilities, yeah. um, in which the Fed directly bought assets of the private sector, mainly uh, some entities that were failing. And so when they, they did that, they stepped outside the lender of last resort role. This and they, time, did, and they, they did it under Section 13.3 Exigent Circumstances, and you're primarily referring to Maiden Lane one and two different Bear Stearns and AIG mortgage assets. That is correct. This this time they did it in a much more significant way. In addition, they used their balance sheet to underroll the payroll protection loans mm -hmm. that the banks were making, which is another stepping outside. And uh, another way in which they did it, and totally inconsistent with the Federal Reserve Act, is that the Fed became the commercial banker to the housing industry. The, the Fed um, bought all of the more new mortgages created in basically two years, and then bought some of the existing mortgages. And so it was in those three ways that the Federal Reserve really moved outside of their, their, their legal mandate. They had done it to a limited extent under Bernanke, but but not not like they did in 2020 and 2021. So it's a difference of degree and kind. Degree and kind, I would say, yes. The SPV, but also also keep in mind that the increase in the balance sheet was substantially greater this time. So they took it to a higher magnitude of increase, uh, at least quicker, because the four trillion. Well, I it was very, to, very quick. Yeah, the four trillion quick. from GFC was three rounds of QE that lasted basically five years. That's correct. Early '09 until the end of '14, where this round of COVID QE was basically within a year, about about the same amount of bond purchases. My, my calculation, I, I mentioned to you earlier, the total reserves are now 2.8 trillion. They were 4.3 trillion. I, I think um, 
by mid, middle part of the year, we're going to be at $2 trillion total reserves. And then that will result in a further decline in bank deposits. And this will extract further liquidity from the banking system. It's, it's real, liquidity is being withdrawn. And, and there's another confirmation of this. Um, when, when the Fed extracts liquidity and it begins to undermine the economy, the yield curve begins to invert. And uh, my preferred measure, although people argue about it, but I don't think it really matters a great, is the spread between the two-year and the 10-year. And we've now been inverted about seven months. And um, the typical lead time between the first inversion, the start of the recession, is about eight to 10 months. Um, it's interest. I think it's very significant that the inversion now is steeper than all of the recessions uh, since the one in the early 1980s. And so that's another confirmation uh, that, that monetary policy is, is in fact in a very restrictive mode. They're, they're absorbing the liquidity that they themselves uh, uh, created. Um, there was um, a very great sociologist uh, by the name of Robert Merton his son was a Nobel laureate in economics. And um, he gave us the, the concept, the fallacy of the theories of grand design. And he, and to, to, he gave a story about a fellow that sees um, a cave on the side of a mountain. And he's interested in caves, so he goes into the cave and the path appears to be clear. And so he goes further into the cave and it's still clear and he continues until he comes to the end. And he says, well, this is easy. What I'll do is reverse and walk back, out, walk back out. But unbeknownst to him, there's been a cave slide. And so it was very easy for the Federal Reserve uh, to do what they did in conjunction with fiscal policy in 2020 and 21, but it, it created a cave slide behind them. The, path, the pathway out is not the pathway in. And, and so, uh, we have this devastating impact on 180 million Americans. And in order, since we, we really cannot survive in an inflationary environment, the Fed eventually responded and they're getting the job done. But the consequences will be that we will have a downturn. Um, Lacey, with that relationship between the Fed and Treasury and their um, facilitation of excessive spending via uh, debt spending, how does um, this compare to Japan and what seems to be there a more politically and culturally explicit accord between their central bank and their governmental function and not at 130% debt to GDP, but 250% debt to GDP, yet without the post-COVID inflationary response that we had, what would be the difference there? Well... The differences, I think, are immense. Um, when you when you begin to underperform economically over a prolonged period of time, mm -hmm. then you begin to undermine your demographics. Uh, keep in mind that um, econometric studies, particularly a very outstanding one done in 2011 by uh, Ken Rogoff and both the Reinhardts, found that when 
debt to GDP goes above 90% and stays there for more than five years, you lose one third of your growth trend. In other words, if you're growing at 3% per annum, you're going to then fall back to two. Well, um, we, we met those, that, that uh, cutoff point in the late 1990s. Up until that time, our per capita GDP was growing at about 2.2% per annum, 2.3. That's the, the correct way to measure it. And since then, we've been growing at about 1.1% per annum. So we've lost more than a third of our growth. But now the government debt to GDP is approximately 130%. And so I think what we're going to find, we don't have econometric evidence to support it yet, but I think what we're going to find is that we're going to lose even more growth. So the growth rate against trend begins to deteriorate. That means the standard of living falters and, and you begin to undermine your demographics. And so uh, Japan is experiencing declining population. A population in Japan is approaching 50. Still 38 in the United States. It's over 40 in China. Yep. Um, it's 46 in, in Europe. In China, every two years that go by now, the average age goes up one year. They're aging at a very rapid clip. And the birth rate in all of these countries is falling uh, very sharply in, in China. The young girls don't want to get married. When they do, they don't want to have children because the economic prospects are so negative. And so I would say that the, the years of economic mismanagement in Japan have created a much more challenging situation because they have allowed this to uh, filter into their demographics. And I like the phrase, demographics is destiny. Yeah. And our destiny is deteriorating, but not as badly as in Europe, Japan, and China. So when we were uh, breaking even demographically from a, a birth rate standpoint at 2.1, we were slowing some of the deflationary pressures that we were inviting upon our economy via excessive indebtedness. But now that we are trying to catch up, or I should say catch down to the demography of Japan and Europe, I believe the latest number is that we're at about 1.6 births per household um, we, we may be accelerating the same trend, uh, which is a declining growth rate combined with a not declining debt rate combined with less demographic force to go produce into the future to offset this uh, problem. I think you stated it exactly correct, and I use the same numbers that you do. And um, if, if, you, if you think about this, uh, having babies is expensive. Raising children is expensive, not only for the households, but also for the, for the industries that su supply them. They have to expand their operations. State and local governments need more schools. Uh, they need more um, public services, water, sewer. Um, and, and so, um, and then another problem at work here is that we're now seeing huge geographic differences within the United States. 
because there's a mass migration away from the states that are economically underperforming. Um, I'll just give you one little statistic here that is, or I'll give you two. Um, the Philadelphia Fed has the coincident indicators number by state. And more than a majority of the states have been shown already to be in recession. Um, the, the employment numbers that come out from the BLS are not broken down uh, by state. But um, ADP, who does a 20 plus million survey, they know the impact regionally. And so they have four regions. In the month of December, in the ADP report, all of the job increases for were counted before for one re- by one region, the South. Mm-hmm. Population declined in all three other regions. Yeah. And so um, as the growth rate deteriorates and some states uh, provide more in the way of economic incentives and growth possibilities than others, then they tend to pull growth from, from other areas. And I think that that is a problem that will continue to uh, be an important element in the picture. I think it's interesting that when we analyze it sociologically and economically, um, that there's not a contradiction in circumstances, that there are, um, for those that want to stay purely economically focused and those that are viewing the sort of sociology at play, they're both observing the same thing and that these things seem to feed together in the form of a negative feedback loop. And this may be one area I, I've spent the lion's share of my adult life believing that those who desire to have both a free and virtuous society as I do uh, have to defend both because the lack of one undermines the other. Really? And I wonder if sociology and economic growth are equally intertwined right now, that the subject of d- uh, demographics and then other issues that may seem more almost governmental, such as fiscal or monetary um, considerations, are really all engaged in the same sort of cultural milieu. Absolutely. And, and what you just said reminds me of the great book, The Road to Serfdom, yeah. written by Friedrich Hayek. And uh, in the 1940s, and Hayek predicted that the command and control economies in the Soviet Union would ultimately collapse internally because uh, they create problems. Um, uh, Growth begins to deteriorate. And in that book, when that happens, um, uh, Hayek had two great chapters. One is called uh, The End of Truth, and the other is Why the Worst Rise to the Top. So as command and control takes over a larger and larger share of the economy, the results get worse. And so what the Politburo has to do is to try to convince people through PR or manipulation of the press that things are better than, than the people know they are. Uh, but it's, it's very hard to fool them because they know what's happening in their own lives. And then the other chapter, which is adjacent, is called Why the Worst Rise to the Top. And so as the command and control economies falter, the Politburo thinks it's because they don't have a tough enough guy. Yeah. And so you get Joe Stalin and Adolf Hitler and Joe Enlai and Mao Zedong and maybe the current leader of China. Yeah. And so what does he do? He begins to get rid of his opponents. 
and and tighten up the press machine. But but these are these are it's very difficult for people not to have economic freedom and political freedom. You have to have both. You're well said. And and the the law of marginal utility uh, becomes applicable even in this sphere uh, because you you as you press harder to make the command control economy work with greater totalitarianism or greater statism, um, you get an increasingly diminished return on your oppression as more flee, there's more demands for freedom, there's more revolt and everything, but the productivity that a free society would be producing. Yeah, well, if you, if you increase the share of the command and control of government, the government sector multipliers are already negative. Yeah. So if you increase the government share, then you get weaker economic activity because you reduce the private sector where you have positive multipliers. But everyone says, well, look at what we did in the pandemic. But the, but the pandemic was, was not just a debt action. It was a debt monetary action combined. And it was the monetary action combined with the supply side disruptions that created the inflation, mm-hmm. and and so uh, if you if you go along if you if you go along the notion that the government greater government is a solution, economic activity will get weaker and weaker until the markets tell you that you can't do it anymore. Like for example, what we witnessed so painfully in the case of the UK, the government the the market the market at some point in time will will veto the process. Fortunately for the United States, um, our actions are not as bad as a lot of others. And so, so, the, so the U.S. dollar retains a value that it probably wouldn't uh, in a different environment. Is the, um, when, when you look at the actions of other countries uh, and the, the currency debate, to me, it's one of the intriguing issues for those that have a more traditional understanding as to where they thought the inflation came from in 2021 and 22. Um, but that was not 1970s inflation where, where the dollar is rallying at record levels against other currencies. Was it a byproduct of currency manipulation that our um, dollar reserve status enabled us to get away with sort of cheating, with misbehaving fiscally and monetarily the way other countries were? Yeah, it, it protected us. It protected us. Um, now <clears throat> that the U.S. economy is weakening, one of, the, one of the other barometers that's entering in the picture is the dollar is coming down. And I think the, the drop in the dollar from the October highs, which were astronomic, uh, and the uh, the fact that the long-term Treasury bond yields have started coming down a little bit off their peaks are both a, a signal that economic prospects are deteriorating. They're both reflecting the same situation. Um, the, the difficulty is that is that when we go down, <laughs> The rest of the world is so dependent on us, yeah. there will be a quick feedback loop. Yeah. And so while the near-term direction of the dollar may be lower, as uh, our economic circumstances 
impinge on the rest of the world, the dollar may not go down that much. <laughs> and and so there, that feedback loop um, essentially results in Jay Powell being the head of the European Central Bank. In many respects, he is, and there's confirmation of that. Yeah. So we've been tightening the news, total reserves coming down, total liquidity is coming down. And guess what's happening to monetary growth in Europe? Yeah. Decelerating as well. Yeah. In China, it's decelerating. Um, Japan is a somewhat different story, but um, the, the Japanese situation is so great. It, it's hard to say for sure where the influences are emanating from at this stage of the game. Do you expect um, one of the things that's transpired, I guess it's really been over just the last, uh, by the time listeners are hearing this, maybe the last six weeks, um, that, that Japan has had to not capitulate, but bend a little in their yield curve control on some of the longer end of the curve. Um, Lacey, I expected our Fed would go to yield curve control post-COVID, it turns out I was wrong that their forward guidance and their aggressive balance sheet expansion kept them from having to. But do you think that yield curve control is going to have to be an eventual policy tool for the Fed based on the reversion to the mean that you're describing? I would hope not, but I think it's a risk because um, I think what they will find, their people are saying that the Fed will eventually go back to quantitative easing. Uh, I think what they're going to find is that when it's and it's not done uh, in conjunction with the Fed moving outside the Federal Reserve Act and not done in conjunction with fiscal policy, it will not be that effective. Be a replay of what we saw um, from basically 2010 through 2016. Which is just the means of providing liquidity in the financial system. Yeah, and it sits there. The velocity of money will fall. Yeah. And uh, it, the standard of living will fall. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the the ability to uh, replay the same mistake of 2020, 2021 is something that's off the table for the time being. And and so that brings us back at some point. Maybe we're talking about the end of 23. There's a headline inflation rate that's politically acceptable, but very likely. Um, worsening economic conditions, and regardless of the political environment at the time, your forecast would be a sort of re uh, re reversion to pre-COVID conditions, only with a lot more debt on the Treasury's uh, P&L, and less productive capacity to service the debt with a lower labor participation force on a trend line basis, uh, suffering demography as we just spoke about, and so forth, and therefore, downward pressure on bond yields. Yes, and and the thing that's different, though, is that in 2021 and 2022, we had two extreme declines in the standard of living that really hit our modest and moderate income households very hard. Sure. And and so we've we've left so many millions of Americans much worse off as a result of this process. And so the, the economy now has a, a, a weaker framework from many different aspects mm -hmm. than, it, than it had before the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I um, don't want to leave listeners feeling totally hopeless and, and helpless, although I guess this particular topic is not one that lends to a lot of Pollyannish conclusions, but you're, you're fond of quoting T.S. Eliot and how a, a lot of this may, may end. Um, maybe, maybe conclude for us why it doesn't necessarily have to end with an explosion. Yeah, yeah, T.S. How does the world end? How does the world end? It ends not with a bang with, with a whimper. Uh, and um, I think that that's, that's where you go. And, and um, the, one of our greatest minds of mankind, David Hume, writing in 1752 in his great uh, treatise called Of Public Credit, he looks at all of the, these examples of extreme over-indebtedness, uh, Mesopotamia and Rome, and then a lot of lesser cases. And he summarized the, summarizes it by something like this. He says, when, when a state is mortgaged all of its future revenues, that's a pretty precise statement, the state lapses into tranquility, languor, and impotence. Yeah. The world ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Well, of course, just a couple of decades later, a great Scottish moral philosopher, quite friendly with David Hume, came on the world scene and and maybe we're in need of another adam smith to uh, we are indeed <laughs> we are indeed unfortunately we, i don't see any around no, no. <laughs> and uh we have some great lights and uh um, i think that uh they would have spoken up loudly uh friedman was one of the best but we just don't seem to have anyone of his stature now well, Lacey, I, th I appreciate, as always, your clarity and and your your eloquent um, statement of the thesis, statement of the case. Uh, it's very persuasive. There, there's a lot of data to absorb. I just am very grateful for your work, your commentary perspective, and uh, hopefully um, we'll have some improvement in some aspect of all this uh, by by the next time we speak. It's so interesting when guys like you and I that I think are perceived to be fiscal hawks in a sense, in the wildly controversial sense that we don't believe in spending above our means, whether we're a sovereign nation or a corporation or a household, um, when people still ask, well, what is it you propose we do? And I say, if you're in the ditch, let's start by stopping the digging. Um, perhaps that's uh, the very next step that can come to temper the the whimper uh, is at least to to stop with the great deficit spending that really does force the Fed into the very unfair position it gets put in. Well, you're you're exactly right. And as a matter of fact, Hume had a policy recommendation. He said that the normal course of activity is for governments to run budget surpluses. Yeah. So that when they have a crisis, they have the resources to pay for it. Yeah. Adam Smith was also so strongly in favor of that view that at the end of The Wealth of Nations, written in 1776, he recommended uh, that Britain not have a war with the American colonies. He said, if you really want to keep them, make them a, make, give them seats in Parliament, make them a legitimate, but, but don't go to war. They, you'll, you'll never recoup your costs, even if you hold them. And um, they, they believed that... Um, the success at the individual level is hard work, saving, uh, wise investment. That that that's that outcome also holds at the federal level, 
And basically, these studies which indicate that the, the government expenditure multiplier is negative is confirmation that good behavior on the, on the household and business level is also good behavior on the national level. That's right. Which is both philosophically and mathematically consistent. That's correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. David, may I say thank you so much for having me. I, really I greatly admire you, and I, I'm just so pleased that you asked me to come on your show. Thank you, Lacey. I really enjoyed it, as always. Thanks so much. I did, too. All the best. Well, once again, Lacey doesn't disappoint. It was such a, a robust conversation, covered so much ground. He is brilliant. Um, lots of, of great perspective and material, a lot to unpack. And, and you know, we, we were really quite focused today, obviously, on economics, particularly uh, monetary economics. And I don't think that it would have been the right conversation to go down with Lacey, how I think qualitatively many of the solutions are found in a resurgence of virtue and morality, um, a refocus on great productivity and, and hard work. I don't think he'd disagree with any of that, but I, want, I didn't want to cover too many lanes. But for those listening and thinking all is lost and we are doomed to best case multiple decades of Japanification and worst case something even more contractionary and recessionary than that, um, I would just simply say that economic history in our great country is filled with times of surprise where there are innovations and um, cultural shifts, including demographic ones. You think back to the what we now call baby boomers and the post-war uh, resurgence of families and strong middle classes and whatnot. There's a lot that can improve the conditions of our economy. But there is nothing that can improve the conditions that Lacey and I talked about today that will not be rooted in the synthesis of liberty and virtue. That's what we work for, a free and virtuous society. Thank you for listening to The Capitol Record.